Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. We're very pleased for our end-of-the-year episode to be joined by Manar Muhawish, who's the founder and editor-in-chief of MIT Press News. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we got a lot that we want to run over, but basically, um, we've been doing this for five years at Unauthorized Disclosure. In the last episode that we produced during the year, we like to look back at uh, the year, uh, maybe talk about some of the things that were big stories, some 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 trends, both dark and and you know rarely, but sometimes there's things that are giving us hope. For right now, we wanted to start with something that has been a focus of your work, uh, and you've also been doing a fundraiser around it, and this has become very alarming over the last year. I think it's much worse than it was in 2017. Uh, and it's the fact that you've got a lot of sub- suppression of postings by alternative media and independent journalists. People have had to deal with censorship from the social media companies, the big social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, and, and, and other companies. And this is something that Mint Press News has been dealing with particularly. So we wanted to start off with that. Yeah, we've been dealing with a lot of suppression and uh, censorship, I would say, um, from Facebook and Google and basically social media giants in general uh, in terms of how much reach our posts and articles will get um, on their platforms. Um, We are facing um, an unprecedented um, amount of censorship that we've never seen before. It's a new wave of censorship by these silicone tech uh, giants who are working hand in hand uh, with the U.S. government to infringe on our <laughs> civil liberties, on our First Amendment speech rights? Um, you know, the government can't suppress us, so they they basically have hired um, social media giants like Google and Facebook to uh, take it upon themselves to do the suppression and censorship themselves. And independent media has been, um, you know, targeted in this censorship campaign because we are reporting on the issues that the mainstream media. Um, is not reporting on, like the true costs of war, um, like what our military uh, machine is doing overseas, and uh, even right here at home, the exploitation by the 99, by the 1% towards the 99%, excuse me. And so uh, independent journalism is needed now more than ever, yet our voices are being suppressed more than ever. And it's no coincidence. I mean, you mentioned it's far worse now than it was last year. And you're absolutely right. And this really didn't start just last year. It started right um, ahead of the 2016 election uh, when Donald Trump was running up against Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, this whole like Russiagate uh, conspiracy started and and the establishment, people on the left, and more specifically, the Democratic Party started accusing independent media and independent journalists of uh, working for Putin, for being Putin minions, because we were reporting on Hillary Clinton's, uh, you know, track record. Not that we supported Donald Trump, but we were just, you know, reporting the truth about Hillary Clinton. And so that's, I believe, the root cause of why many independent organizations are uh, being targeted. Yeah, I mean, what what, what it seems like is you you've seen that many of these Democrats want to blame all sorts of systemic problems and discussions of those systemic problems, um, anything that's uh, anti-United uh, States 
but with good reason because people have concern about foreign policy, that becomes conflated with the agenda of any foreign power. So it's really difficult to actually do journalism. I mean, I'd say that it seems like what we're doing is endangering uh, adversarial journalism and privileging uh, state-identified journalism where you almost celebrate what the government does. But it's more of like, because of who Donald Trump is, we're seeing many journalists celebrate institutions instead of President Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. In many ways, it's like, it's like all of these uh, outlets, these mainstream outlets have uh, portrayed themselves as actually as being subversive by being anti-Trump. But in reality, they're anti-Trump, but pro like pro state institutions, pro like pro U.S. military, pro U.S. empire. That doesn't really make a difference, but it also adds this like fake subversiveness. But at the same time, yeah, it's like a war on alternative media. Um, and it's not just like, it's not just with Min Press. It's also, I mean, Min Press is dealing with this, but a lot of us are dealing with it. Like basically any alternative form of media that isn't the New York Times or the Washington Post um, or any of, you know, MSNBC, CNN is, I feel it is being like, is being seriously suppressed. And what's really sad is that people are justifying it um, because like they're justifying it under the guise of like, oh, we have to be able to get rid of people like Alex Jones. But then in reality, like it ends up being used against us. Exactly. And, and you know, something that um, people rarely talk about or even recognize is this cozy relationship that Facebook has with neoconservative think tanks like the Atlantic Council, who, by mm -hmm. the way, is like now headed by like a former State Department official. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is like and, and then, the, and then um, you know, the Atlantic Council is funded by Saudi Arabia, by Israel, by many people in the Democratic Party. And so this is who is being, um, you know, assigned to work with Facebook to flag so-called, you know, fake news or Russian bots or, you know, influencers on social media, um, specifically on Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, and that's how Mint Press was targeted. We actually... Um, you know, a lot of independent media organizations, including Mint Press and even Truth Dig and several others, were actually targeted in this list by this McCarthyist site, uh, Proper Not, which is like tied to the Atlantic Council. Mm -hmm. So um, they're going down that checklist of organizations that they're censoring and suppression. And we, when we say censoring and suppression, we're not just saying that some of our posts are not being seen. I mean, we've seen literally a decline of over 60% of our readership decline. Um, wow. since this whole suppression and censorship campaign started. And the reason why that's so detrimental is because it's affecting not just our reach and our readership, but like our advertising revenue is down too. So it really is a matter of survival for independent media outlets that don't get a lot of funding to begin with. But like now we're turning to our readers and saying, hey, we're pleading to you guys to keep us um, afloat and to keep us to keep us going. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people that are justifying it because they see uh, people and organizations like Alex Jones and Prison Planet getting censored. But what people don't realize is that that only sets a precedent for other for other activists and uh, regular Americans to be targeted in censorship and suppression campaigns as well. I'm wondering yeah, it's so... Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Well, I was going to ask you to comment on any efforts you might have uh, taken to talk or, or communicate with people at Facebook or, or you know, Twitter or any of these 
places where you're having suppression because uh, it's been widely reported that people who, you know, they have nothing to do with any foreign governments. They're just doing journalism and they've, they've tried to open themselves up and, and, and defend what they're doing. But the worst part is that they don't even want to engage those people. You know, they've talked to the Atlantic Council or they've talked to these outfits. I think there's something called Hamilton 68 that's done some work that's been widely discredited. Um, and these outfits are so influential that they don't even want to engage with people who are trying to um, get guidance on what they can do so they're not blacklisted. Uh, we've never really reached out to Facebook um, before, but um, I know that other pages that have been purged, um, I believe it was um, in early November, when the or early October, when the big purge happened, when Facebook uh, removed over 800 alternative websites, uh, pages, and journalist uh, pages that were set up. And many of them were like alternative media and independent media organizations like the Free Thought Project and the anti-media and like journalists who have just used the page to promote their work, like Rachel Belvins, who's an independent journalist, um, they reached out to Facebook and asked them why they were removed and they were not, Facebook never responded to them. But Facebook did release a statement that they were removing spammers. And so it went, so now that the narrative has kind of changed before it was like they're targeting um, you know, Russian bots and Russian influencers and those working with foreign governments. But now they've kind of changed the narrative a bit because there's no evidence to, <laughs> to show that any of these organizations are tied to the Kremlin himself. So they're using this whole thing about, well, uh, these organizations are spammers, which is so ridiculous. I mean, they're really pulling at straws here to get rid of um, organizations that are, uh, that are highly influential on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. I mean, if you look at the pages that were purged, they had millions of followers. Maybe Facebook should have asked those millions of followers if they didn't want to see their that news and asked them why did they subscribe to that to those pages instead of just um, making that decision for the people and removing those pages. I mean, Facebook is playing like this authoritarian uh, thought police game, which is really, really scary. And they're doing it, I mean, like you mentioned, what's so alarming is that, you know, everybody likes to make the argument that, oh, these are corporate entities, this isn't the government censoring. But like you said, the Atlantic Council receives funding from several governments, including the U.S. State Department, um, as well as the Turkish government and the Saudi government and the UAE um, and a lot of weapons contractors. But the point is, is that is that you have think tanks like the Atlantic Council that are funded by governments that are then advising Facebook. It's like a loophole for government censorship. It's, not, it's more than just a loophole. The government is assigning them to do this. It's like a legal loophole. Like to get it, because it's not the government necessarily doing it directly. It's like doing it through a third party that they fund. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, what's happening. and so it's really, really alarming too, because like you, I mean, it's basically like we're all dependent on these social media outlets to, for us to have a platform because we don't have corporate money, right? Because we don't have access to platforms like the New York Times and Washington Post that have these big readerships outside of the internet, like, or like these TV channels that are funded by corporations. And so it's like, it's just insane that like Facebook can basically erase your audience in a, it, just like that at the snap of a finger. 
Exactly. And, you know, we don't we don't have millions of dollars allocated to marketing like these other organizations do. Like you said, like we just don't have that kind of funding. And I believe there's like a new, this new poll that came out, which isn't really surprising, that over 90 percent of like the world population or something like that, like it's a, ma a massive, massive number gets their news from social media. And so um, we've allowed these social media giants to basically be able to control our newsfeed and they are just cracking down on what people are going to be able to see, hear and read when it comes to um, what's going to appear on our, on our uh, home feeds. That's really alarming given the, uh, the way that you can see a lot of uh, liberal grifters, I'll call them, who seem to rise to the top. Um, with their their tweets, I mean, they get thousands, if not tens of thousands, of of shares, and they're usually hyping a lot of um, you know, what I'd call false news, or it, usually it's fabricated, and it's been most pernicious when it involves allegations around the alleged um, RussiaGate um, investigation. But uh, you know, the one other thing I want to ask before we maybe move on to um, more concrete stories, um, we wanted to talk about a couple um, conflicts that have uh, dominated the last year and years before that. But um, I know that you're probably one of the organizations that have had difficulty with these companies because you do pair your stories with photos that show the realities of war and conflict. And this has been really terrible. Um, and I know that it's actually not unique to Mint Press News. I saw uh, just days ago, you know, regardless of how um, weak and apologetic he can be for the, the U.S. military, um, Nicholas Kristof was dealing with the fact that his story was getting taken down from Facebook because it was paired with a very graphic image, or not a graphic image, but it had a graphic image that showed the reality of, of, of yeah. what's going on in Yemen. And I know that's something that Mip Press has dealt with. Yeah, and actually, I was going to use that as an example. I saw him post about that, and uh, you know, Facebook ended up actually responding to him because he, he he created a post about it and contacted Facebook. But Facebook responded to him and said, "Oh, we made a mistake. We're going to make sure that that photo is is not censored." It's like here's the New York Times, you know, an establishment journalist uh, getting a response from Facebook and then allowing uh, what he's reporting on um, to be available to the public. Well, we've been reporting on what's happening in Yemen for the last three years. The New York Times actually just uh, finished a trip um, in Yemen. Uh, three years into the war, they just for the first time entered Yemen and started reporting on the horrific genocide that's taking place there. But Min Press has been reporting on the crisis in Yemen for the last three years since Saudi Arabia began bombing indiscriminately uh, Yemen's food supply, its naval bases, its airports, I mean, its infrastructure, everything you can think of to basically uh, bring the entire country, which is a population of nearly a 70, 000, 70 million people, excuse me, um, on the brink of uh, starvation. Uh, today, over 20 million people in Yemen, including hundreds of thousands of children, are facing starvation. And we've been posting these images on Google, um, on our website, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, and on Instagram. And a lot of these photos have been censored. They've been um, um, removed. I know that the anti-media was another website that had several of those photos removed for being inappropriate or too gory. Um, sometimes they add age restriction, um, which is also a form of censorship, I believe, when they add the age restriction, because that kind of removes so removes the photos and imagery away from so many people's eyes. 
And so, um, you know, now that the now that the crisis is so dire in Yemen, I feel like now we have organizations like the New York Times uh, bringing attention to it, which is great. But it's like, where have they been for the past, um, you know, three years uh, that, you know, if, if the near if organizations like the New York Times, the Washington Post and Reuters and the other major organizations brought attention to what was happening in Yemen a long time ago, we might not have seen the, the crisis erupt and extend uh, to the point where we are today. And so um, I appreciate the New York Times bringing attention to it. And it's great that Facebook is now not censoring those photos, but it's been three years of us trying to kind of break through the media apparatus to bring that uh, stories to people's attention. Yeah, the New York Times uh, and all these other mainstream outlets, I, mean, I, I, I agree with you. I'm glad they're finally on Yemen three years after the fact. But I mean, what's what's so unsettling is that it took the murder of a, of a person. They keep calling him a journalist, but he wasn't actually a journalist. It took the murder of like a Saudi elite who was a, a columnist at Washington Post uh, for them to care about like millions of starving Yemenis. Um, and that speaks to something else that's really disgusting about our mainstream press is like, they really don't care um, about things until I guess it, it, it it's just so offensive to them, like one of their own. This guy was an elite like them and he was brutally killed by the Saudis who he spent his entire career defending, which is like the irony of it all. But Khashoggi's death is like really the only reason that, that, that Yemen's even getting attention. I could not agree more. I mean, the fact that this guy was, like you said, not even a journalist. I mean, he was like working for the Saudi um, intelligence mm -hmm. and he was parroting uh, regime change across the Middle East that supported the Arab Spring, that supported, you know, Saudi influence um, and military influence in all of these countries from the Middle East to Africa. And it took his death for the United States and for the establishment journalists at the New York Times and the Washington Post to say, hey, maybe we should reconsider our relationship with Saudi Arabia. They're kind of brutal. It's like, they've been brutal for a long time. They've been chopping <laughs> people's heads, starving people in Yemen. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely good that they're bringing attention to it, but it, it's really sad that it took um, that scenario for them to kind of, uh, to start talking about it. I think that encapsulates what's going on with the Yemen war. So I'd like to uh, move on to uh, the, the, the Syria conflict. I'd like to ask you, Manar, um, about um, you know what it's been like for you to to cover this. Um, and I think it's important now to talk about this on our show because we're seeing that troops, uh, U.S. troops, are going to be withdrawn um, in some capacity from Syria and uh, that this is going to have a huge effect on what's happening on the ground. Um, but it's also worth raising because in the past year and years before that, the way that people cover the war in Syria has, has had such an effect on individual journalists. As in, if you actually cover what's happening on the ground, there are so many labels that get attached to your name which are intended to discredit you and prevent you from having any influence on this topic. So, so Menard just wanted to get your comments about Syria and, and, and journalism on the conflict. Well, the crisis has been going on in Syria for over five years now, and we've definitely watched, um, you know, in that time frame, how the media has evolved in its coverage of Syria. And uh, it went from being a humanitarian crisis that we need to save the people of Syria from an evil dictator to we're fighting ISIS and we're trying to now uh, create this like independent Kurdish state 
And so the, the, the narrative about the war in Syria has evolved. And, you know, Mint Press from the very beginning has, um, you know, covered the war in Syria. And we've looked at uh, the true uh, driving factors of uh, the war there, which, you know, whenever we hear like there's a, hum you know, there's a humanitarian need to go to war, that's like code word for, uh, you know, we're going to go in there and bomb the country and replace the current leader with someone more brutal or whatever it is and, you know, and bring our troops there. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Um, in the last five years, the United States has occupied over 30 percent of Syrian land. And when we hear about um, U.S. troops in Syria, um, you know, the, the media and our politicians really downplay like the U.S. influence in Syria, like we're just arming rebels. But in fact, we have over 5,000 troops. Um, I know that the media reports on, you know, there being less than 2,000. But in fact, we have over 5,000 troops in Syria. We've been working hand in hand uh, with Kurdish factions, with uh, the FSA, who have now pretty much been dissolved into like ISIS and Al-Qaeda groups. And so we've basically been stirring up a lot of trouble and, and this and a lot of bloodshed in Syria. And we've created just like, you know, past colonialist powers before us. Uh, we've done what we do best is we divide and conquer. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where the current situation is in Syria. Um, the United States just announced that they are going to be removing those uh, troops from Syria. However, I, you know, I'm kind of like, the pest, you know, the skeptic, <laughs> and we are kind of all are at Mint Press. Like this is not the first time that the United States had said it was going to withdraw the troops from Syria. This happened, in fact, just a few months ago in April when the United States said we're done in Syria. Uh, the war on ISIS is now over and we've declared victory and uh, we're going to be withdrawing our troops. But then Al-Qaeda factions um, committed a false flag chemical weapons attack, which then kept, gave the United States another excuse, another reason to continue to stay within Syria. And so I don't want to be uh, too pessimistic here. I hope that the U.S. troops get out of Syria. But, um, you know, based on what's happened in the past, um, it seems like this is just another, you know, we'll, we'll see what could happen next. I hope that a, a false flag chemical weapons attack won't happen, but it's very possible. In addition to this, um, you know, with, with the United States uh, occupying over 30% of northern Syria, if the United States does actually leave that territory, there has been no mention if the United States will hand that territory, Syrian territory, back to Syria. In fact, there's a lot of talks of the United States handing that territory back to Turkey um, to continue so that they can, so that Turkey, Turkish military can occupy um, that land and extend its, its influence there. And so we're trying to bring truth and trying to bring like a realistic uh, perspective on what's happening in Syria. And as you mentioned, it's obviously been very difficult to do so from at the very beginning. If you um, call out the war for what it is, which is, you know, a brutal, brutal uh, war, it's a, not for humanitarianism, you get called an Assadist. If you talk about how the war against ISIS or, you know, Al-Qaeda is all a farce, you get called like a Putin lover or, you know, secretly funded by Iran and the Syri you know, the Syrian Arab army. And then now if you talk about, um, uh, you know, you're skeptical about the U.S. withdrawing its troops or whatever it may be, or you, you critique it, you have people, or if you're even celebrating it, you have people like, like, like a Victoria Newland. She just like published this op-ed in the Washington Post this morning and, um, you know, she's a famous neocon who's like, 
very upset that Trump is declaring that he's going to be removing uh, U.S. troops uh, from Syria. And so it's like there's like no win-win in this situation, um, I feel like, when it comes to reporting on Syria. And I know that Ronnie has had a lot of experience with these like kind of smear tactics and in dealing with uh, bringing truth to the conflict there. I, I want to. I just want to add a little bit to uh, my own analysis to what Manar said about the the withdrawal that Trump announced very abruptly yesterday. I think it's very obviously it's a good thing if the U.S. withdraws from Syria. Um, and from what I understand, just from some people I've spoken to, this withdrawal is actually going forward and it's already begun. Um, but my my concern about this is that, and this is not to say that U.S. occupation is good, but the way the U.S. withdrawing is the way the U.S. withdrawals is important as well. And basically, the area of northeastern Syria that the U.S. has basically been occupying, both uh, with some, you know, with thousands of U.S. troops as well as its uh, local allies, um, that area the U.S. has done. It, basically, the U.S. has been allied with Kurdish militias in that right. area, um, and the last couple of years, uh, especially with the neoconservatives in Trump's administration, but also under Obama, but especially under Trump. The U.S. has basically gone out of its way to um, sabotage, sabotage and discourage the Kurds from basically negotiating with the Syrian government to have a return of the Syrian government to this Syrian territory um, after ISIS is, is, is kicked out of these areas. So as the U.S. withdrawals, uh, basically this is to go off of what Manar was saying as well about handing that area over to Turkey. Basically, there is no functioning government in this area because the U.S. has done everything in its power to make sure the Syrian government cannot uh, return sovereignty to this area, cannot come back to this area. So without some sort of state apparatus, once the U.S. withdraws in this really abrupt manner, what you're going to see happen is like these, basically these local Syrian sectarian Sunni militias that are like Turkey's militias are going to, are basically going to come in and create chaos. And it's going to, it's going to basically provide another incubator for Al Qaeda and ISIS style groups, which is already what exists in Idlib. Um, and so that's what's really, really, really uh, bad about this way of sort of like leaving so abruptly after st stopping the negotiations between Damascus and the Kurds in these areas is that like instead of the Syrian government being able to return, you're going to have more chaos because of a lack of a state in this area. Um, and on top, and this is just like another situation where uh, the Kurds also kind of get fucked after allying with the U.S. Um, but also, this is just, I mean, this is dangerous for, there's like a very fragile stability right now in both Syria and Iraq. And the way that the U.S. is leaving is going to basically, like, destroy that, that stability in a lot of ways. I hope it doesn't happen, but I think it's going to. And what's really interesting is the reason that the U.S. even stayed in Syria this long. Trump wanted to leave months and months and months ago. I mean, he was talking about it when he first came into office. But these, like, neoconservatives in his administration convinced him not to. Um, and to stay, and the reason they wanted to stay was to be like a bulwark against Iran, right? Right, right. Um, that was like their whole idea. They say that they're there to fight ISIS, but in reality, they're there to like prevent Iran from having like whatever they think is a foothold in Syria, which isn't actually like a thing. Um, but in the, but what this is basically going to do is it's going to cause. Um, I mean, the U.S. policies really end up blowing in America's face because what it's going to do is it's going to. It's going to create a couple of incubator zones for like Al Qaeda style groups, like what exists in Idlib, because of the lack of a functioning state. The Kurds are going to get killed by those groups, and Iran is going to, out of its own like necessity for its own security, is going to have to get more involved in Syria. Um, 
to secure to secure itself against this threat. So like it's just a, it's going to create a mess. And so I mean we should we should absolutely celebrate the US withdrawing um if that is what's actually taking place, but you have to also consider how the US withdraws because that is important. Uh so it's really weird right now also though on top of all that to see these people like Victoria Newland and like all these other neocons and then liberal interventionists right. losing their shit over the idea of a withdrawal regardless of how it's done, even if it was done in a good way. Um, they're all going crazy. Like Rachel Maddow was like, this is going to make our, the parents of our troops who are serving, they're really nervous. And it's like, what does that even mean? Yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they going to be happy that they're not there anymore? I mean, how can you be nervous if you're not there? I'm just, I'm confused. And it's also funny because these people are like, oh, this is a gift to Putin. This is a gift to Russia. This is a gift to Iran. And actually it's not a gift because this is actually going to create further instability again because of the way the US is withdrawing so abruptly and suddenly after going out of its way to make sure the Syrian government cannot return to this territory that well, is that, that is Syrian territory. Well, and everything you described is like, you know, such a standard uh, divide and conquer doctrine that has been used by colonialist powers from the British Empire to the Ottoman Empire, you know, to now the US Empire. We go in, we destroy, we we create instability, we create such a volatile uh, you know, fragile situation where, uh, you know, there's no stability whatsoever. And then we leave and then we say, look, look, they're, they're fighting each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's like, I mean, it's again, like, um, I, and I, I tried to be really careful with my wording because I did like a little Twitter thread about it because I didn't want to be accused of like being pro-U.S. occupation because I'm not. The U.S. needs to get the fuck out of Syria. But that said, like, it's like, this is a really stupid way to do it. Um, and, and yeah, maybe this isn't, but and like all, but it's also funny to watch because these neocons are like losing their shit yes, because they, they really do see, I mean, they really do see this as like, I, I don't even, they're like, they're like Iranophobic neocons. Like everything they view is through the lens of hating Iran. Um, exactly. The people that are in trouble. Like Tom Cotton. That, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like, they're all freaking out because they, 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 cause it's funny, like US policy in the region, because they create this instability, they ultimately end up empowering their adversaries uh, because their adversaries have to get involved in order to keep things calm. Uh, like Iran wouldn't even be involved in Syria if the US hadn't done what it did by like creating these, the, be creating the conditions for ISIS and Al Qaeda, which is what the US did and actually aided them in many ways. And it, that's an existential crisis for Iran. So of course Iran had to get involved. Syria is like in its neighborhood. And, there was and, this, and it's just more fuel for the military industrial complex. I mean, the more reason we can continue to go to war, whether by proxy or, um, you know, um, whatever, it's, it's, just, it's just more fuel for the military industrial complex. And of course, mm -hmm. all of these neocons, that's where they get their funding from, is from these is from these weapons manufacturers. That's who they represent um, at these think tanks. That's why they're so adamant about um, continuing to promote uh, the, these war tactics. And so it's a really disturbing, um, I don't even know how these people sleep at night, but um, you know. They really, I mean, they really have a view. They really, they really have this ideological view of the world where like they, they've like convinced themselves that um, that like what they're doing is for the good of humanity. Like that's what, I think that's actually really terrifying. Like that it's makes them even more terrifying. Mm -hmm. Very disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I do think that um, what's interesting is like, I don't know if you would agree with me, Minar, but it does seem like we're in an era of 
like U.S. decline, especially in the Middle East. Like the U.S. is increasingly less powerful in the Middle East than it was four or five years ago. Um, and that, maybe that, that might be partly because of Russia's increasing involvement in the Middle East. So there's like so, there's like a, another kind of big power to check America's power. Uh, but that said, I mean, there's definitely something like when it comes to U.S. empire, I'm not saying U.S. empire is like done, but it does seem like we're in an era of decline for sure. Well, and, you know, and I don't I don't know the answer to that. I haven't um, you know, I haven't been to the Middle East in over 10 years now. But when I do speak to people in the Middle East, whether it's Iraq or Yemen or Jordan or Palestine, Syria and Lebanon, Egypt, <laughs> no, North Africa, where the U.S. is just having a dandy old time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are tired. They're really sick and tired of U.S. influence. And they're kind of, uh, um, you know, they're they are trying to also kind of get back to their roots. They feel like globalization and colonialism has really taken, um, you know, apart and broken apart the threads of their society. And war in general has, you know, broken apart uh, their societies. And so people are people are in survival overseas, and they do blame uh, U.S. wars, not the American people, but they they blame like the military machine for destroying like their sense of humanity. And so, I mean, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but it's from what I'm seeing, it, it sounds like that that's taking place. I'd like to go back to um, one issue that, that connects to where we started our conversation, but we, we didn't really get into it. Um, but I wanted to have you speak, Manar, on um, this. The, the, obviously, this isn't a new trend, and we don't mean to suggest it's a new trend, but we saw it um, as, as a particularly vicious in a particularly vicious example, uh, when Mark Lamont Hill lost his job and, and was fired from CNN, um, and I know that this is something that um, Mint Press News has to be concerned about as well. About um, you know, it, it obviously your platform will allow coverage of Palestine um, and Israel, uh, but I wanted to um, talk about this subject about how we're basically seeing media ramp up um, its suppression of, of coverage, and, and particularly under President Donald Trump, even when the policy um, with Israel, is, is the, the coziness is even much, much more brutal and amplified than when it was under President Obama. Um, I think you would have a tough time um, uh, disagreeing with that, and, and yet... Um, the forces, the pro-Israel forces have still such a stranglehold. And so you have this censorship and you have to be concerned about it, not um, just with voices getting pushed off these mainstream platforms, but also your content um, and the way it can be suppressed on like Facebook or Twitter. Right. And I, I, you know, I, I would just like to start by saying I have no idea how Mark Lamont Hill was even on CNN. I mean, this guy is a social justice warrior who spoke up not just about Palestine, but about oppressed and colonized people around the world. Um, and he was a commentator on CNN, which is like <laughs> the opposite. You know, they, they provide coverage, which like which is like the opposite of what Mark Lamont Hill 
um, you know, provides coverage for. And so when he was, um, you know, I believe that they've been trying to get rid of him for a very, very long time. He's been dangerous for CNN and he's been dangerous because he's been calling for equal rights and an end to colonization and for holding like the war machine and Israel accountable for a very, very long time. Um, but was, what was really interesting um, on what they chose to um, uh, you know, pick on was his UN speech where he talked about holding apartheid, Israeli apartheid accountable and giving Palestinian people like an e equal rights, like this very basic concept of equal rights um, is what really ticked off uh, these Israel lobby groups. And it was specifically when he said, um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And of course, um, you know, Israel has been committing an ethnic cleansing and genocidal campaign against Palestinians from the Jordan River to uh, the Mediterranean Sea for over 60 years. Yet, um, you know, the Israel lobby groups, um, including Stand With Us, um, APAC, and I believe the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia, who are the ones who worked uh, with CNN to get him fired, um, those are the groups that took his words and kind of spread it out within the media apparatus and kind of twisted his words around to say that he was spreading anti-Semitism and calling for the destruction of Israel, which is so ridiculous because um, it's what he said was the opposite of that, which is that the that Palestinians have been living under a genocide and ethnic cleansing campaign since the creation of Israel. And so we have these uh, Israel lobby groups who are working directly uh, with CNN and who uh, have been working um, and are on the board actually of Temple University to get him fired from Temple University, which by the way, he didn't get fired. He ended up keeping his job from Temple University. And I believe it was because of how much, um, you know, uh, public pressure from like pro, you know, human rights groups and activists online, you know, showing just the hypocrisy of attacking this professor's free speech, his First Amendment rights, and the fact that he's simply calling for equal rights for Palestinians. But um, this was yet another example of how it's almost impossible to speak up for human rights uh, within the mainstream media. I mean, Ronnie just a bit ago talked about how Rachel Maddow is, you know, freaking out about like troop withdrawal in, you know, in Syria. I mean, to talk about um, Israeli occupation, to talk about U.S. troops being involved in wars overseas, um, to talk about wars for profit is totally, totally okay. To support uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide of people we don't like is totally okay on mainstream media. But the second you talk about human rights and providing people with equal rights, that's what gets you fired. And that's what's really, really scary about this whole social media um, censorship campaign is that, you know, it all kind of boils down to that is that, you know, the people who are getting censored, who are getting suppressed, who are getting um, basically axed out of, um, you know, all these platforms are not the crazy ones who are calling for war or genocide. They're actually calling for, like, peace and equality. And that's what makes it so scary. No, Manar, you're absolutely right. It's, it's amazing what's allowed and what's not. And when it came to what was amazing about CNN firing Mark Lamont Hill is that they also have people like Rick Santorum, who is like a paid contributor, a senior political analyst on CNN. Uh, and Rick Santorum has literally denied that Palestinians exist. Like, he's like completely erased them, but that's okay. Um, and what's even more amazing is it didn't get any, it like, it, there was a few articles here and there, but it got almost no mainstream attention. It is perfectly fine. I just cannot believe that we're in 2018 and it is still 
uh, perfectly fine to fire people for calling for equal rights because the equal rights they were calling for happened to be for Palestinians. Well, and you know what's so ridiculous about this whole thing is that, like, the fact that they have to censor these voices is not a sign of strength, in my opinion. I feel like the Israel lobby is shaking in its feet, in its boots, uh, because of how strong uh, support for BDS has become for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement for um, holding apartheid in Israel accountable. I mean, like, five years ago, nobody even called Israel an apartheid state. You wouldn't do that publicly because you were just too afraid of getting, like, smeared or something. But today, it's a like common fact now that Israel is an apartheid state. Um, we have like Secretary of State John Kerry, who literally said that Israel, yeah, Israel is an apartheid state. They're practicing apartheid. We have the UN. We have people from human rights groups and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International um, bringing attention to these things. Finally, um, not afraid. And so, um, I, I, you know, I and like Andrew, you know, I would add to that. You for the first time, I think this is pretty stunning. Um, you have actual elected members of Congress who are supporting BDS openly. I mean, it's like four right. or five of them, but that's still a big deal. It's that was unheard deal. of, unheard of five years ago. Absolutely. We have Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, who openly support, I think those are the only two actually, that maybe there might be more, the only two that I know. Yeah, maybe I'm exaggerating. I'm like, there's <laughs> 10. But there's I mean <laughs> the only two that have openly supported BDS, which is like a really, really big deal. But just the, the same tactics that went flying uh, for or flying against Mark Lamont Hill, that he was anti-Semitic for supporting BDS. Um, you know, now Rashida Tlaib and um, Ilhan Omar are facing the same kind of accusations that they're anti-Semitic, that they're calling for the destruction of Israel. When, of course, like those are just like that's completely off. And they won and they won. And these people are winning in an era where like there's this sort of like progressive populism that can get people elected in smaller districts without um, depending on APAC and corporate money, uh, right. which also like I mean, the whole like pro-Israel apparatus is completely aligned with like the corporate um, with like the corporate state. They have to be because there's no there's not as much organic momentum for like supporting Israel as there is for Palestine. And that's why they need to go out of their way to suppress it like this. But what's even more fascinating is uh, like the New York Times just had an, an editorial op-ed, um, like by the editorial board, uh, basically coming out pretty explicitly against the anti-BDS laws. Uh, so like the pro-Israel side is like increasingly losing. So yeah, you're right. Like they have to resort to these suppression tactics. They don't have much of a choice. And I think you're also right to point out that like, Mark Lamont Hill is progressive um, and pro-social justice on so many important issues that it's not even, not only is it shocking he was at CNN in the first place, but it's completely likely that like they've been trying to look for a way to get rid of him and this was just the opportunity to do it. All right, so um, looking at the time um, and I'd like to move to the, the last part of our show, which we, we've done this every uh, year um, with our end of the year show, Manar, and I, I um, if you have something to contribute, that that's great. But we like to bring um, stories to the show and talk about things that we think um, uh, maybe didn't get a lot of coverage. I know a lot of the stories we've been talking about on this show already were things that haven't gotten a lot of coverage and went underreported. But like even these things that we're talking about, they were talked about um, in our circles, and they were talked about. Um, in alternative media, and they they got some level of attention. But um, th th there's 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 one thing that I brought that. So for example, I'll I'll get us started. Um, I 
was drawn to this thing that I was reading about where um, indigenous people are actually fighting for rights of nature around the world. And this is something that like I've heard little to nothing about this year or even uh, years prior. Um, and, and I just wanted to you know, spend a moment highlighting this from, from my example and contribution to the end of this show. Um, it's basically that there are people um, in um, Brazil um, and Ecuador, uh, people who are fighting for the Amazonian rainforest um, and fighting against um, corporations. Um, and, and that basically um, in this National Geographic article that went up in November, um, they have this very like stunning statistic to that I don't think most people are even aware of, which is that um, indigenous people at this point make up five percent of the world's population. You know that would be obviously due to the colonial nature of 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 the progression of the world in in history and and how so many have been wiped out by colonialism. But they are actually known to be protecting 80% of global biodiversity. Wow. As, as in the fact that they um, are in existence and, and the fact that they're working to win their own indigenous rights is intertwined with their work to protect um, trees, insects, species of birds, mammals, um, all kinds of things that are essential to our ecosystems around the world um, and engaged in these frontline fights against climate change. Um, and, and I think what's so traumatic for our world and doesn't get enough discussion is how um, not only do you have this rise of right-wing authoritarianism and nationalism globally, but connected with that is this denialism of science and um, and and what is uh, what is going on with our climate, and 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 in Trump's administration, you know, not only do we have the 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 gross bigotry and hatred that is spewed, but simultaneously you have the empowerment of people who are selling off federal land, selling off land that has um, a right to indigenous people in this country. Um, uh, giving more access to oil and gas companies to destroy this land. Uh, but this is saying basically that there are fights around the world. There are fights won by the, the Maori in uh, New Zealand to protect rivers. Um, there are people all around the world that are taking it uh, steps, which you know, I think gives me a little hope that, that if they're respected as guardians and, and that they take this up, that, they're, that in their struggle, they're able to protect parts of the world that are so crucial to managing our emissions. Because I think one of the most devastating setbacks for the climate this year, aside from what Donald Trump continues to do through his policies, uh, through his administration's policies, um, which, you know, just to be clear for people listening, because I know they always want me to make sure I cover equally, um, it's not like I'm suggesting the Democrats were going to be much better. I think their inaction would have been just as devastating. Um, however, the, the acceleration here has been really devastating for the world. Um, and uh, I, I think the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil was a very alarming development for uh, the climate 
Uh, but you see that all of these indigenous people who are on these front lines are engaged in something that is concrete. And, um, and, and this story of, of earth law basically suggests that this has been uh, something that has been uh, used to success to protect against development, to protect against mining interests in Australia, to protect um, against development projects in Mexico, um, to protect against logging and, and agriculture um, and, and, and to protect against dumping of, of mercury and, and all kinds of sorts of things that are ongoing in Canada that are de devastating. So just, you know, I think this is, this is what I wanted to put out there as, as, as my thing for the show. And if I could, if I could just segue, since I was actually going to talk about South America, um, you know, what you're describing is really what most, <laughs> what most conflicts um, are rooted in, which is for exploitation of natural resources, uh, which brings me to my next point and uh, talking about something that I think is severely underreported, especially within the mainstream media, is how the United States is preparing for a war uh, between Latin American states. I think that we're so focused on the Middle East, um, you know, with good reason that a lot of times the media uh, tends to forget what's happening right, you know, you know, below our border or south of our border. Um, the United States helped uh, get a lot of right-wing governments elected surrounding uh, Venezuela. And uh, we've got countries in, uh, or elected officials in Brazil and Colombia and Mexico. Um, now a region that was once uh, very progressive is now once again fighting for its survival against uh, these right-wing governments that are being funded by the U.S. government, and so um, you know, just just you know, I'm not going to take up too much of everybody's time to talk about it, but I think that we should be watching out. Our eyes and ears should be open to what's going to be happening next in Venezuela. Um, the United States have been funding via millions of dollars um, in trying to overthrow the democratically elected government of Nicolas Maduro and in suppressing and taking down the Bolivarian revolution across all of South America. And so I think now all eyes are on what's happening in Venezuela. Of course, not our media's eyes, but our eyes are on Venezuela. Um, Venezuela is the largest oil producer in South America. And so our eyes are on uh, Venezuela, um, you know, like hawks trying to take over there. So I think that's something that we should be paying attention to more. Um, because of the unrest that we've basically helped fund in uh, Venezuela. The country is in turmoil, and the media likes to present it as if, you know, it's socialism to blame, but they never, ever mention how the United States um, has uh, extreme economic sanctions against Venezuela. They're funding, um, you know, a violent uprising, just like they do in several countries that they want to overthrow via millions of dollars and weapons and so forth. And actually, Nicolas Maduro just made an announcement, I believe it was like two or three days ago, that John Bolton was uh, working, is working overtime to foment war on Venezuela um, with the newly minted far-right governments of Colombia and Brazil. And we're not just talking like, you know, semi-conservative governments. I mean, we're talking like neo-Nazi-style governments that, um, you know, that promote white nationalism um, in their countries. And so uh, they've waged a war against indigenous people in their country, and they plan on uh, hitting Venezuela uh, where it hurts. So I would just definitely keep an eye on what's happening in Venezuela. 
Yeah, I know those are all two really good topics um, that I that I would have picked, uh, I think. Uh, but since you've already talked about climate change, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Venezuela and Central America, Latin America in general, um, I think this kind of ties into some of what Menard just mentioned in a different way. But I think that you know we hear we hear a lot about Russian meddling and you know uh, Russia manipulating social media, but I think that we're um, in experiencing something unprecedented right now, where you have like uh, just un we don't know about all of them, but there are networks of like Western intelligence organizations have like have like psyop operations using social media that are extremely effective at this point that we don't even hear about. There was one that was recently exposed, this like uh, UK foreign office, I believe, funded um, uh, a thing called uh, the Integrity Initiative, which was like a project to basically spread prop. It's like a UK government funded project that was being run by like a military official, um, but was being uh, like, uh, it was like a being fronted as like some sort of NGO that was basically running smears against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and others as well, but Jeremy Corbyn running smears against individuals, um, basically calling people like pro Kremlin and pro Russia when they when that wasn't even the case, um, and it was being funded again by the UK government. And I think it was like a little sneak peek. I think one of the only outlets to cover it uh, was like the Gray Zone Project. Max Blumenthal covered it, but it received almost there was these documents that were basically leaked from the Integrity Initiative, uh, showing like networks of mainstream journalists participating in this. Um, as well as certain politicians. And uh, it's received almost, it's received no mainstream coverage whatsoever, but it's like a little peek into, into what's actually taking place right now, where you really do have like intelligence agencies in the West doing exactly what they say Russia is doing, um, which is like basically taking over social media, funding troll factories and troll farms, and trying to manipulate what we're seeing. Um, and trying to like push smears against people to it, to advance um, geostrategic interests in certain foreign policies. And I think it's extremely effective. Um, and it's also being used against progressives. Um, it's like I, I think it's also being used against people like Bernie Sanders, you know, however progressive you think he is, he does pose some sort of threat to like the corporate mainstream, and they don't like him. And so I don't know, I think that this has been extremely undercovered. And all the attention is constantly on Russia or like Iran and what they're doing on social media. But I really like think that we're in an era where social media has like, like intelligence agencies have really found a way to use it to their advantage in a really highly effective way in a way we don't even know about. And sometimes I think we're being targeted. Absolutely. And it, it's really scary because, you know, this is the United States of America. We are the spreaders of democracy. <laughs> All over um, and we uphold our First Amendment rights and our civil liberties and free speech, you know, right? But mm -hmm. then you're here in America and it's like our free speech is like being, you know, trampled on every single day. And I mentioned this in one of my live pro uh, broadcasts, but um, you know, people talk about moving to the United States because they live in uh, autocratic regimes where they can't speak up freely. They, you know, the, the press and their first, you know, their free speech rights are trampled on every single day. So they come to the United States thinking that they're going to be able to have this free speech. But in fact, it's, you know, it's being trampled on every single day here. It's very scary stuff.
Yeah, like we're not being arrested and tortured for it, but we're just being suppressed <laughs> in ways in ways that we don't even understand. Like, yeah. I, I think it's really happening in ways that we don't even really realize or understand in like really sophisticated ways. And people, when you talk about this, they'll act like you're wearing some sort of tinfoil hat, but it's yeah. like, this is what intelligence agencies have always done. They're just now finding a way to do it in the, the current way that we communicate, which is social media. Um, but like, this is what they did all through. Like, it's like, we know for a fact that like that these, that, you know, um, that, you know, policing authorities and intelligence agencies have monitored, spied on, suppressed, targeted anti-war activists, historically anti, you know, civil rights activists, historically, uh, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that they're still doing those kinds of things, but I just feel like they found more sophisticated ways of doing it. And we've barely scratched the surface of what that means at the moment. Well, and um, you know, you know, and I just want to add something really quickly. I know everybody has to go soon, but like Rania, they've co-opted so-called leftist organizations like Buzzfeed and, um, you know, Vice News. And so we're seeing like this, this also this rise of like this, you know, hipster neoliberal, rag organizations that you know are are reporting on under the guise of liberalism or progressivism so mm -hmm. then when, when we when real liberals come out like you know like us or real progressives come out with like real information we sound crazy and yeah we get we get attacked as like being the tinfoil hats mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly I'd, ahead, qu Kevin. I'd quickly add as as we wrap here that uh there's all this focus and everyone can't escape it on Russia and what their intelligence agencies are doing and in and doing that it's a it's quite a good misdirection because it gives cover to whatever western intelligence organizations are doing and it makes it so that no matter what the US empire is the victim when we know quite from evidence that we have available that they are able to deploy their own offensive cyber warfare. They are able to engage in their own social media monitoring and interference, and that they, in fact, have done this before to uh, share their own propaganda and to advance their own agendas, because that's what a superpower would do. And so it's always incredible to me that there is such a one-sided um, uh, discussion among um I'll, I'll just say Americans because I know that the corporate press, the the establishment press, is going to come from a U.S. point of view. But just among Americans, among us, we always talk about it as like a one-sided thing of like what is Russia doing without thinking about the the two-sided nature or the fact that the one side us might be hyping and exaggerating what Russia is doing or what any other foreign power is doing to advance our their their own uh, imperial agenda. Um, exactly. So uh, as we close here, Manar and sign off, um, how can people support Mint Press News? Um, and, and then we'll, we'll leave it there. Well, we just launched a uh, $25,000 fundraiser, which, by the way, we've, we've already raised about 90% of our goal because of the support of our readers um, who are helping us combat uh, censorship. So if anybody uh, can or would like to donate, they can join our campaign. It's on our website at mintpressnews.com. They can also find us on GoFundMe. And it's under my name, the fundraiser. You can look it up for Manar Mohawish. And even if you can't donate, um, you know, we appreciate just getting people to support us through sharing our news and uh, hitting like or retweet or whatever it may be on social media to fight those social media algorithms. 
Um, and so that kind of support would be very much appreciated. All right, well, thank you for coming on the show. Um, anything else from you, Rania, before we let Manar go? No, I just want to say thank you to Manar and also thank you to all our listeners for sticking with us for another year. And we will be back in 2019. Woohoo! <laughs>